Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud. Hello, all you beautiful souls. Thank you for joining me again, doing my favorite kind of show today, a live in-studio show with a good friend of mine that we met uh, several years ago. The birth of this show was out of peer support. The idea was, okay, we got this peer support group, and it's pretty cool, and people really seem to like it and get a lot of value from it, and they're driving two or three hours just to be a part of it. So how do I scale it? How do I take this peer support group that half a dozen or 12 of us would enjoy and and benefit from and find healing with, and how can we grow it and make it bigger? So I made Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. But I'm not the only one that said, hey, how do I take this little group and make it bigger? Today on the show, I have Jason Trenholm, and he is also a veteran, and he is the dude for OSI Can. OSI Can is a scaled-up version, a national program for peer support for first responders and veterans. Jason, thanks for being here, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the invite. It's only been chasing you for, what, three years? Yeah, it's been a long time in the making, I guess. I finally (laughs) got you. There you go. I can can text the Premier of Alberta, but I can't get Jason Tranholm on the damn show. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Um, So let's start with your service. Sure. Let's give us give us the the standard rundown. Yeah, who'd you serve with, man? What'd yeah. you do? Uh, I've I was a Strathcona my entire career. Well, not I shouldn't say my entire career. The first uh, year and a half, you know, there's like a thousand dragoons that just yeah, yeah, just I know. Spat, they, they spat, they spat out of their mouth yeah, for sure. For you, sure. you say you say Strathcona and yeah. they spit. That's okay. I make the gravy jokes too. So <laughs> it's all good. Um, yeah, we. Uh, <clears throat> We joined, I say we, because my wife and I were married and we joined together due to my uncle saying, hey, why don't you try to join the military? Because I had tried to get into the RCMP and I wasn't successful. And, and let's quickly translate for all the non-Canadians uh, uh, listening worldwide here. Uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police? No, no, yeah. uh, for the Strats. So okay. this is an armored corps. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll elaborate when I get to how I ended up out here. And, sure. Um, so my uncle was the regimental sergeant major for a total force unit in the East Coast right when they come back from from Germany. And my wife and I decided to join the reserves, give it a try. We spent a year and a half and spent most of that year and a half on what they called Class B call-out, the, the full-time employment for the part-time employee or part-time soldier. And we really enjoyed it. And we jumped at the opportunity to to apply to go reg force. And we ended up staying in New Brunswick uh, at a reserve unit as privates, troopers, 
and we were prepping all week long for the weekend training when the, everybody came in. So, so, so she was also armored. Yes, she was. We both joined the same trade. Uh, okay. And it's funny because we were always on different courses. And they did that intentionally, I think. Um, but uh, no, yeah. you're not sharing a hoochie tonight. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Not not that armored guys enter, ever end up in a hoochie. You guys no, got that's the crew right. tents. No, that's right. On the heated back deck. So, yeah. oh god, yeah, lucky buggers. Yeah. So we uh, we went right for us. Uh, we did our first tour with two RCR engaged down, and it was fantastic. Just uh, not ever having been at a a reg force unit. Um, we, we saw the bond, the, the building of, of camaraderie within the, the organization. Um, still have a lot of guys that I talk to now and then that are RCR and, and they're, they're good people. And I mean, I know the Patricia's same way. They, you guys like to bun fight back and forth and give each other a hard time, but and, I mean, and I again, think that's for in our, our DNA. For our global audience, uh, the RCR is the Royal Canadian Regiment. They're the other English speaking infantry, um, yeah. Uh, unit in Canada, and my unit was uh, the PPCLI, the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, a light infantry unit. Yeah. So we we really enjoyed that tour, and and just prior to deploying on tour, we had got posted here, so we dropped our stuff off and and uh, pretty much dropped it off into a, a military housing and went back and deployed. Uh, when we come home at the end of tour. Uh, we already had our posting out here, so we said goodbye to family type thing after we got home, stayed home for a couple of weeks. The welcome home thing after your first tour as a young trooper, everybody's all proud of you. And we, uh, we were like, well, it really wasn't that much. It was pretty quiet when we went over in 99, fortunately. I know not so, it's not so much the case prior to, but, uh, and we were liaison officer drivers. I mean, we had our, our days that it was a little bit hairy. When mm-hmm. they wanted us to go off road with a unarmored uh, Iltis, so yeah, there's a lot of lot of landmines still there yeah, in '99 percent through us. Yeah, and uh, I, me being me, I I had my I'll say bun fights with with some of the the senior leadership that was there, wanting me to go to a certain place when the road wasn't cleared, but stuck to my guns, and I'd hand them the man pack and say, if you want to go, go. I'm not. T- I'm not taking this vehicle down there. Simple as that. I cleared the routes that are clear before I left. They're pushing camp. you to take uncleared routes. Yeah. So it's, I mean, oh my and God. to me, that's not so much an organizational thing. To me, that's I look at that as uh, poor leadership. Absolutely, I mean, it is. Yeah. And so, I mean, I understand mission before self, but I mean, there's a place when you draw. There's a time when you draw the line, right? And uh, to me, that was that was huge. It really opened my eyes. But uh, again, it uh, well to put you in harm's way for no for no damn reason. Yeah. Like even a proven route is never proven. There's no such thing 100%. as a truly proven route. Like yeah. it doesn't even exist exactly. unless you're right behind the uh, the engineer's carrier, and even then they might have missed one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, that's right. So yeah, it was it was a great tour, and I I really enjoyed the the friendships and the connections that I made. And uh, we came home, went went to the regiment right away, and. Here we are, the the new troopers to the regiment, and people were just moved. They had just moved up from Calgary uh, because that's where the Strathcona's were, right before they opened the base up to a greater degree in Edmonton. And we were the new faces on the ground, and it was here's a broom, go sweep the tank hangar. And after planning, I'll say working in ops and stuff as troopers at a reserve regiment, I mean we 
we did more than troopers are norm- normally responsible for and then get handed a broom and told to go sweep the floor. It was a wake-up call for us, but, hey, that's part of part of being a uh, junior rank, right? And, well, not just that, but the douchery of reserves um, and how the reserves get treated by the rake force. You know? Yeah. I, th- I, think, I, I don't we know if it's gotten fortunate. better, but... Uh, yeah, we were pretty fortunate. I can't complain about that. Anybody that we worked with, they knew us uh, because of... There was Reg Force people that left the Eighth Hazars, which was the uh, the Eighth Canadian Hazars, which was the total force unit, reserve, and Reg. And those people had been posted to the Strathcona's, and they they knew us when we got there, so they kind of it, it was welcome arms. And and yeah, there's always those people. That, I thought uh, Hazars were um, artillery. No, they're armored. They were they were armored. Yeah. Okay, for sure. Um, Big feathers in their hats. Oh, not not our hazards. Oh, okay. The, the eighth is maybe the. I know there's a hazards unit in Ontario, uh, but uh, but no. I know some got funny hats. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we we enjoyed our time as as troopers, corporals with the regiment, and again, at that time, the the early days of our career, there was that old camaraderie where you would go to the mess, you would do things as a group, you'd, you'd build those friendships and bonds and build that family. And we, everybody that we hung out with, all their family was at another location. So they were either Easterners or they were from BC or whatever. So we kind of built our, our own little niche of people and we would do a lot of things. We'd do trips to Banff, we'd do trips to Jasper and, and do hiking and pretend we knew what we were doing as as troopers and corporals going into the mountains with a topographical map and going for walks and just wonder nobody got eaten by a bear or whatever. But it was <laughs> it was a good time and we really enjoyed it. And as our careers progressed, uh my wife ended up getting out after six years in the Reg Force. She uh she injured her Achilles tendon and they medically released her. Um she uh she took the opportunity to do uh, re-education, and she became a biomedical technologist. So she's she's done really well for herself, and and I was I was the lifer, so I thought. And when I when I did the my next tour in two thousand three with the Strathcona's, uh, we exact same camp. Uh, I was now in the CP, and I was the uh, CP driver for for the squadron, and. It was a good tour, quiet. Uh, there was a couple of things that we had that, that escalated a little bit, but nothing serious. And the the camaraderie, we noticed the group of us that used to hang out all the time, that we know we were all on tour together, and we noticed that it didn't exist anywhere else in the squadron. We noticed people didn't do much together. So, I mean, it is what it is. When we came back, we started we started drawing apart, and we didn't understand why, and and of course, that's 2003 or 2005, six. That's the introduction to the video game era, and nobody wanted to go out anywhere, and they wanted to st- stay home and play their video games. And and then all of a sudden, nobody was going to the mess, and nobody was doing things together. And we thought it odd, like it, because uh, to me, that was one of the reasons to join the military, right? To build that that bond and friendship with people you served with, and. So it, uh, I, I enjoyed the junior ranks. Yeah, well, absolutely. And and then it got to the point that there was the same, the same three or four people were going to the ranks and the junior ranks, and that was it. So as my career progressed, and I, I all when I joined, all I ever wanted to do was be a tank commander, and I never thought I'd do it on a two way range, but it was it was pretty cool. I enjoyed it. 
the novelty wears off when you're getting shot back at, but uh, it's the the ranges and stuff is what my introduction to the Armored Corps was because I worked with the rig force part of the Hazars in Gagetown. So I was on the tank ranges and I was humping ammo and I was getting doing camp duty stuff, but I was getting to participate in the ranges and periodically be thrown in. They'd let the unqualified trooper fire some tank rounds. And that was, so like I said, that was my goal was to be a tank commander. And 2010, I guess I joined, or I was with the Strathcona's. Uh, And is that a sergeant rank? Well, you can be a mass corporal as well. Uh, at the time when I was a mass corporal, I was teaching in Gagetown. So I did have a stint of three years in Gagetown that I was teaching uh, DP1, so their trade qualification. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time in Germany, uh, mid-2007 to late 2008, early 2009. Um, to I was the lead instructor, one of the liaison instructors with the Germans when they were teaching our troops coming on their way to Cagetown, or on their way to Afghanistan. So when they were in, uh, they were in Afghanistan, we were in Afghanistan in 2009, or 2009 I knew that I was being posted back, I had asked to be, um, I was training the DP1s, and I said, you know what, I said, I'm tired of training these kids, because they were quite young, and they were going on tour. Some of them weren't coming home. Some of them were coming home busted up. And I said to my wife, I said, it's my turn. The The guys that I served with are on their second, third deployment, and I haven't been yet because it's happened. It started for the tank squadrons right when I left to go teach. And I said, I'm, I don't want to live in that environment, those that can't teach. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That I hate that because it's so cliche, right? But... I mean, the the people that are teaching have a lot to offer, especially when they come from experience. And I felt like I didn't have that experience, so I wanted to get it. And if I went back to teaching in New Brunswick at, at the armored school, I was content to do that. So we come back, and I was uploaded in on the squadron right away, and we deployed in April 2010 to Afghanistan. It was a, it was a good tour. Uh, we lost a couple good guys, and... The uh, the reality hit every time you get a you heard over the new over the radio that that we lost a guy or there was one fatality or whatever it may have been, but it really hit home when it was people that you knew and somebody I taught engaged taught with engaged out, and it just it was eye opening right and that that was I think one of the biggest incidents that caused my commencement of my break, mental health breakdown it was uh it it was tough at times and then was there a sense of guilt there that hundred oh, percent because it was somebody that you taught and did i teach him well enough and yeah uh after hearing what had happened i mean i knew that it was nothing that anybody else was responsible for other than the fact that we were there i mean it, if it wasn't him it was going to be somebody else the route was cleared prior they went in at nighttime and and put the ID in place. And he came in. He was a, I believe he was driving a sergeant major, and he uh, he hit the ID. So it was it was tough. Um, and that, I mean, I went on tour or I went on LTA like leave. I went home for my two and a half weeks. And while I was home, we lost a bunch more people. There was people that I worked closely with in the squadron, a couple medics, a couple engineers. 
and it was it was difficult. Uh, I'm here. I am at home, and I'm watching the news. And at the time, I was the type that had the new, every news channel you could find, and not so much anymore. I kind of <laughs> I kind of got rid of it all. But uh, yeah, and when I went back, I went back. I guess July second or July first. July first, I think I went back, and it was. I mean, it was like I, I had never been on tour because to me that the, the tour really I knew okay this is there's a potential for worse than what's already happened, and it was pretty quiet the the rest of the time that I was there until it wasn't, and I got injured in September of that year. Um, it was nothing serious. It was a piece of shrapnel hit me, and and I'm not gonna like people say oh that must have been traumatic and. Any any dealings that I've had with my mental health or recovery or anything like that, it's never the incident where I get injured that that causes me anxiety or causes me to be upset. It's everything after the incident itself. I it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, um, I I know how fortunate I was more than once during that event. Where did you catch the trap? Uh, in my left left ulnar tendon and nerve. And Still it's, in there? No. They took it out. I've got it in a bottle at home, actually. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, and I was—I know how fortunate I was. I was fortunate before I get hit with the shrapnel, just based on where I happened to be and where the. Do you still have full dexterity of your hand? I do. I can't close my hand up, but and I d- am able to lift as much with this hand as. So I not full dexterity. No, like I can't movement-wise. No, but capability to lift, yes. And it does get cold really quick. Mm, sure. Aches, yeah, less circulation. Yeah, aches all the time, but it is what it is, and I know I know how fortunate I am to for it to be so minor. But again, that uh, breached universality of service, which the capability of doing my job as intended when I joined, and they the regiment did offer when when I got my medical release, they did offer to account, uh, accommodate me, and I was like, I don't want to be that crusty old warrant officer. I was a sergeant at the time. I well, don't want to be, but now you could actually use the the legit line. Oh, it's a it's no war wound. <laughs> it's acting up. <laughs> yeah, that's not. You me. actually got one. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'd rather use it to say I can't do my job as intended, so I'm ready to move on. And and a big part of it was like that. I got my medical release in 2012. That's when they presented the paper to me. And and by then it's two years into my injury. Uh, I had a couple surgeries and and lots of physio. Excuse me. Uh, lots of physio. And the physio brought me back to where I felt like I was I was content. And uh, when they gave me the the medical release, I gladly said, you know what, I don't want to be that guy sitting in an office and not participating. Because I was 16 years, I was always, I'll go, I'll go, I'll deploy, I'll, I'll volunteer for this, volunteer for that. And don't get me wrong, I've I've had lots of uh, lots of buddies. Give me a hard time. They they used to call me Good Go Trenum uh, because I got picked up for the the tank task in Germany, and volunteering once to go to Germany got me the other five, four or five week rotations through Germany. Right as a shadow instructor. How'd you like so, Germany? Most people like fantastic. it. Fantastic. It was hard in the liver. Hard very, the- very hard in the liver. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it was a wonderful time, and and I had some great people on uh, on my uh, my. I'll say training time while I was there and not just the students, but the other people. And your buddies bring home a wife from Germany. Uh, there was a couple of students that, that met ladies there and, and married somebody. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. Thinking back on it, I think there's a couple. Yeah. My buddy, Sean Singer brought home a German. Yeah. No. Um, but we, uh, we enjoyed our time there. And yes, I worked with some RCDs in Germany and great guys. And, and we actually managed to get by the, uh, different cap badge things. The Royal Canadian <laughs> Dragoons were a good bunch. Um, yeah. So it's funny, like w- when you're in the, uh, the rivalries, you know, they almost mean something, but, oh, uh, 100% do. but, but if you actually are in the field and, and working with them, then it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Or, you know, if you've been out for a long time, like it's always the Patricias and the Royals, right? There's no actual animosity there. No, it's, exactly. it's just a bit of fun. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think Afghanistan really, really quelled any, animosity that was there right because we realized that hey we've all got jobs to do and we're there supporting each other i mean how many times did as infantry guys or as armored guys did we give the artillery guys a hard time because they're in the rear with the gear and and launching from afar yeah, right yeah, and, 18 miles back yeah but i can tell you those are the guys <laughs> hey infantry what's what's going on up there <laughs> yeah those are the guys that saved our ass when i get when i get hit and yeah. if it wasn't for them, who knows, there would have been many more casualties. So well, all the roles are essential. A hundred percent there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we, we, we truly, truly enjoyed the tour piece and, and coming back injured. I, I tried to maintain contact with people and, and whatnot, even after I got out, but naturally it happens that you don't, right? Because of the lifestyle changes. And and society changes, right? And the people that you used to go to the mess with now, not that I didn't have a family, but they have their own career to worry about, and they're just it's kind of out of control. And as as uh, time per changes, then people's lives have different uh, responsibilities. So, what year did you get out? Uh, I finally got out in two thousand fourteen. So, at what point uh, were you diagnosed with PTSD? When did you know? Uh, it was pointed out to me before I said, yes, I got something wrong. Um, while you're still in, uh, yeah, I was still, I was, my wife had been saying, Jay, something's not right. You need to talk to somebody. But what year was that? Uh, between, between when they said you're going to be medically released and when I was actually released and so 2013 ish. Yeah. Ish. Give or take six months on either side. Um, it was being pointed out to me that something was wrong and I was having, I was having anger outbursts and not understanding why. And then it became the emotional piece. I'd cry at a stupid Tim Hortons commercial and it just, it was crazy, man. And <laughs> hey, I, those are pretty good commercials. Yeah, they're good commercials, they, but I don't they, know if they, they weren't. They hit you right in the, right yeah, in the chest. Right in the feels. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if they weren't uh, a 20 some year army guy breaking down in tears when there's nobody else in the room yeah. and my wife walking in and saying, what's wrong? And I, through tears and the ugly cry is, I don't know what's wrong. <laughs> and uh, so, so yeah, it was pointed out. And I think it was like that it. after my heart surgery Yeah, when I was 29, I'd be brushing my teeth and I'd start bawling or yeah. look at the kids across the street and go, oh, they're so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. it's little things. Right. And, yeah. and I think a big part of it was gratitude, but not knowing. Right. I didn't know the, the emotional piece it was gratitude that I had that I didn't identify or I hadn't identified with regards to what was making me so emotional. So, yeah, so she had pointed it out over and over and over again. And, and I had started school, uh, upgrading. Yeah. I started upgrading, I guess. Well, I was at the recruiting center at the time. Cause when I told the regiment that I didn't want to be accommodated, they said, okay, your last couple of years waiting for your medical release. Would you like to go to the recruiting center? 
I thought it'd be great, great opportunity. <laughs> did Did you lie your ass uh, off? As no, a I did not. No, you didn't I, tell him. Do you like camping? Not at all. You never used the line I, once. Do you like camping? Once, not once. I did say because <laughs> it ain't if camping. You like camping? This is not it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it camping. Was, they have marshmallows and fires. Yeah. We don't get that. Yeah, I did. I did talk to the the people that come into recruiting about the camaraderie that they you, you would hope to build while you were there and. And the discipline, and it gives you a the service, serving something else bigger than yourself, right? And that, that was a big part of why I wanted to join the military or why I tried to get into the RCMP. I wanted to serve my community, wherever that may have been, right? And it it was good until, well, earlier you had a hat on people over politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I saw that, right? I saw, I saw things being agendas being pushed, right? Whether that was numbers, whether that was equality and people were coming in and, and scoring the same as the next guy and the next guy was being, or next guy or girl was being selected because of ethnicity, sex, whatever it may have been. Right. And I, I really didn't like it. I, well, in policing that has to happen. You know, uh, in in my opinion, because the the police force has to reflect the community. Yeah, like I think that's critical. Um, but in soldiering, uh, that's not the case. Yeah, no, I uh, I agree. It's it's to an extent, but people shouldn't be getting a leverage. In my opinion, and this is I'm only going to speak ever speak from my perspective, my opinion. Right? I mean, it's it is what it is, and some people don't like it, but then the breaks. We're allowed to have our own train of thought, but I I don't think that somebody should be getting a leg up because of their nationality, their color, their ethnicity, their, their gender. I mean, I mean, people, if you meet a qualification, then the opportunity is there. And, and we're, we see what's happening now, right? In the CF, the Canadian forces. Well, there's a standard. Yeah. You meet this trade standard or you don't. hundred percent. You know, so, so yeah, so when I left, when I left recruiting, and again, don't get me wrong, I met some great people in recruiting. I mean, I'm not taken away from the people that I worked How long with. were you there? Uh, 2012, I went in July, I think, and I was, I left in, well, I retired October 2014, so two years. And it was, it was great. I served with uh, Patricia that was there, and he, uh, amazing dude, still, still in touch with him. We play poker together now and then, so, but, um. Yeah, it's uh, it was my opportunity to step out and and start a new career path, and I still hadn't been to the clinician. I went to a clinician once while I was I think it was two thousand thirteen when I was do, still doing my physio for my arm, and and uh, that was my my first introduction, which was why my first introduction to mental health supports, and the big reason why it took me another two plus years to go for more. So your first introduction, I'll read between the lines here because yeah. I'd like to extrapolate I'll, on this. I'll, I don't mind elaborating on it for sure. Yeah, yeah. so your, your, your first time uh, jumping into the system and meeting a clinician, that did not land well. No. I, I went in, I seen him, I think, I think it was the fourth visit that I seen the clinician and he was an ex-infantry uh, guy, officer, uh, infantry or artillery 
That's he, so strange that he, you'd go from combat arms to... I, I know, uh, but it was evident. Like he said to me on my fourth visit, might have been my fifth, but I think it was my fourth. He said to me, I don't know what else to tell you. I'm not willing to work harder than the person coming to see me. And I was just, I'm not going to say devastated, but it was like a boot in the chest, right? Like like he was kicking a door in Afghanistan. Well, he was telling that you weren't good enough. Well, that you weren't do, that you weren't pulling your weight. Yeah, and I I truly felt like okay, I finally put myself out there. I finally I finally became that person that wasn't shy to ask for help. And he was basically right. saying suck it up buttercup. Yeah. And that maybe that's what I felt like, I don't know. And and just it was the way it was worded. If he just said, "Jay, you really need to start disclosing. You need to you need to talk to me. You need to open up." That could have been so much different of an outcome, right? I wouldn't have struggled from 2013 or yeah, 2013 until well, 2016 was when the the three year window that I was in and out of the mental health system for supports. So I want to pause here and I really want the audience to understand this. All the work I've been doing lately with Veterans Affairs Canada, uh, trying to enforce reform. This is why this is why the Toughest phone call I've ever made in my life was the thousand pound telephone when I finally reached out for help. My first point of contact was the Royal Canadian Legion, Northwest Command. And they were a soft place to land. Had they not been a soft place to land, I would no longer be married. I'd be living on my own and I'd probably be dead. Yeah, absolutely. I'd That's- probably be dead. That's that's the way I felt, right? When when I felt okay, I've I've broken that barrier and I've asked for help. I like that analogy, the thousand pound telephone, because it is right, yeah, hundred percent. And especially when you know whatever it is you're going through, it's impacting those around you. And that's the biggest part for me is the impact that I had on my wife, my kids. Well, that's where a lot of the suicide comes from because guilt. Because when yeah, it's absolutely guilt, and then we fall on the sword, we self sacrifice because I mean, there's there's I'm going to have to write a a piece on all the different reasons for suicide. But one of the big ones is when you look around, you realize that you're the asshole. You realize that you're the one that's doing harm and you have no idea how to stop. But how long does it take you to even acknowledge that you are the asshole? But I'm saying like where the suicide comes from is, is once you do get to that point Mm -hmm. and you can't do anything about it and you feel trapped. So the only solution is, well, I'm hurting those that I love the most it looks like the world's better off without me because I don't know how to stop hurting them. Yeah. I don't know how to stop being an asshole. And then they kill themselves. They, they, they fall on the sword. I mean, there's, there's, there's more than that. Like oh, there's, 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 there's other this. reasons. When I had my attempt last year is because I had a psychological break. I broke from reality for a moment. In my head, I wasn't trying to kill myself. That's not what I was doing. In my head, I just wanted to see what the inside of my wrist looked like. I wanted to... Feel the sensation of the cut and 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 have a nap, you know. And what's this going to feel like when I drift away? So it was a psychotic break. But um, there, so there's different reasons to to get to that edge. But one of those reasons is why this show exists. Yeah, you know, it's like no, there are resources. There is help. You know, here's help. Here's all the soft places to land. I find them. I bring them here. That's why I do this. Because if you are not that soft place to land, that's how it kills people. Yeah. 
Yeah, like I said, when when I when I finally was able to be out and and I be out there, put myself out there, I guess, and and ask for help, it was it was enlightening and it felt good. Okay, I finally broken that barrier. And then when that happened and that was said to me, I I walked away and I at first I didn't tell my wife that that was said to me. I just kind of said, "Well, the doctor said I'm good." Oh shit! Right, yeah. and and I did everything I could to keep it under control, keep that anger, and, and of course now I'm this forty. Well, at the time, I was this forty-one year old dude going to going to uh, Nate and dealing with kids and kids right out of high school in class, not listening to the teacher and got their music on in the back row, and I'm that guy. Right. Yeah. And, and there Listen was a couple, here, fuck stick. Oh, more than once. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> being, being from was the knife, did the knife hound come out? Uh, oh yeah. 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 And yeah, I'll oh, take you outside the school. And, and of course the instructor at the end of the class, Jay, I'd like to talk to you for a minute. You can't talk to the students like that. You're going to get kicked out of school. The Dean is going to kick you out. And I was like, well, you asked them to turn the music off or you asked them to keep it down and they didn't listen. So, Crusty old Sergeant Trenum gets up and walks to the back of the class and listen here, lights light him up. So it was, it was definitely, and of course, that <laughs> awesome. was that was the start of my next breaking point, right? And yeah. I was, I was having issues, and that, I mean, I'm no longer. At the time, I didn't know, but it was I no longer had an identity, right? Yeah, and I, I was the soldier for 20 years and I had a purpose and I had, my life had meaning. Now I'm sitting in class with a bunch of 19 year old kids. And, and again, in hindsight, looking back, a lot of the guys that I went to school with are incredible people. And I still talk to a lot of them now, but it, uh, it was definitely, it was definitely the start of my second, I'll, I'll say loop into the mental health continuum. And it, it just, I went to the OSI clinic. I got back into the OSI clinic cause my wife said to me, okay, you're, things aren't good. And she was there with me every time. And she was the one that told me I needed to get some help. So, um, the OSI clinic is the operational stress injury clinic and they were only stood up, uh, what late nineties or, or uh, later in the oh, later, I think mid two thousands, maybe. Well, 2015 is when I was going there and I think they were maybe a year or two old. Then. Oh, it's that late yeah. in the game. I, th- I think, don't quote me, but yeah. I, I don't remember them. I don't remember them when I was. So for for the no, audience, I'm, li- I'm lying. Maybe maybe 2010, 11 ish. These so these um, think of them as like VA VA mental health clinics. So uh, that's what the OSI clinic is. It's uh, set aside for us for uh, military and RCMP. Yeah. So yeah, so I did my my stint through that those offices, and I got every day I went in. I was going, I think, once a week, and every day I went in, I had a. 145 question questionnaire to fill out oh. just on computer. And every time I filled it out, I went in and I sat down and the the doctor said to me, or the, the psychologist said to me, well, Jason, you're not depressed. And I'm like, <laughs> I know I'm not depressed. Like, and I've, I'm one of those fortunate ones that I never had suicidal ideation. I never had. Oh, you're lucky. They yeah, suck. I know. I know. And I, I, I know how bad I was and I can't imagine how difficult it would be to be in a worse state. There were, there were times for me, suicidal ideation is, I mean, having those thoughts of intentionally killing yourself, right? Where don't get me wrong. I did have those thoughts of, you know what? If I 
smoke by transport today, then so be it. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not like whatever, like that, that I was hurting, but I wasn't willing to do it myself. Right. Because I had made a promise that I would never do that. And I know that I would have been held to it. So I guess, (laughs) I guess she, uh, again, she was there for me. Right. And she, uh, when I when I went to the OSI clinic for multiple months and over and over and over and they kept telling me I'm not depressed and I go home and I'd say well Tracy my wife's name she said I said to her I said they told me I wasn't depressed based on again based on these and she's and she said well why are you so emotional so I didn't know and finally I stopped going to the OSI clinic because they said I think we're good I think I think now you just got to use the skills that we taught you and and uh, move forward. I was like, okay, there was no follow-up. There was nothing. I know. So, and I mean, that. I think that was the third time that I had started seeing someone because I, I was seeing someone in St. Albert when they opened the new clinic up. So, so yeah, that was the third time that I, I was seeing somebody at the OSI clinic. And then I got out, I got out of school. I got a fantastic job with, with uh, Darren McPherson. He's with Keo Equipment in Edmonton. Incredible dude. And the the family was there, right? Like everybody that worked at the office, they're an HVAC company. And it just it was it was an honor to work with them. But I, we all know those people that have a job and they go to work and they steal a paycheck. That's what I felt like because I my heart wasn't in it. Yeah. So I stayed with him for three years. And while I was there I got involved with the Legion. Uh, I was in, involved with the Legion a bit when I finished school, but not to the degree that I was when I left Kehoe. Uh, I, I got involved with the Legion because I wanted to help people and contribute to my community. And my wife and I had a purposeful conversation in the hot tub one night saying, "What do you now that we're done? Now that you're done school and you're starting a second career, you're not going to be deploying anywhere. Like what we we always said we wanted to contribute to the community. And then I was like, well, you know what? Let's let's volunteer at the legion so whether that was working a bingo working selling 50 50s on fridays and saturdays or whatever and next thing i know i'm the president of the local branch they needed somebody to run and i ran and i won i'm like oh how the hell did i do this because i'm not a (laughs) i'm not my my campaign started and i when i first addressed the people at the legion i stood up and i said i'm not here to be your friends (laughs) <laughs> and, that was, and, and, and everybody wife, and I, everybody with military service smiled yeah. and all the civilians civilians went what wait a minute what are you talking about but, but it was i've got enough friends and i'm here to hopefully help this place succeed yeah i've already got and, enough friends yeah and it was difficult i mean the the city supported the legion uh we had our membership base that supported the legion but there was things they wanted as membership that we couldn't provide without taking a loss of funds and it, it eventually ate us up. Like prior to me leaving, uh, we talked about whether or not we were going to renew our lease. And and my vice president, uh, she uh, she's married to a veteran, so she was from the family piece, right? And she had she had a previous marriage with a, a veteran, and she understood the struggles for veterans and their families. And that was, I mean, I was honored to work with her, and she was the brains of the operation, right? She she definitely. Uh, she definitely knew what she was doing, both business and policy-wise and all this stuff. So uh, at the same time as pre- being president, I was also working as a service officer because we had no volunteers. Uh, 
So what's a service officer do? Service officer providing resources and support to veterans when they come out and ask for help. Uh, not just just veterans, but I mean, I was the point of contact for the Legion when so somebody needed something. What what type of uh, resources and support would that look like? At at the Legion, they've got they've got funds that can be contributed to the community, and they've also got the Poppy Fund, which is strictly designated for veterans. Right, and if if the veterans come to us, us being the Legion, if they come to us with an identified need or they're struggling, they need a grocery card or whatever it may be, the Legion, the local branch can only provide so much, up to three hundred dollars, I think it was at the time, or three fifty. So financial support is what the Poppy Fund is for. Financial support. Uh, when I was working at the Legion, we put a roof on on a veteran's home. Um, we, we provided support in the amount of four or $5,000. Leduc, Leduc, uh, Alberta is fortunate to have the community that they do with regards to supporting the poppy campaign every year and the amount of money that they had in their account. It was great to see that we were able to do that. The only thing is it's fighting at a higher level because you're accountable to the money you spent. So, Or, or you should be. Yeah, of course you should be. But you shouldn't have to have veterans crawl across broken glass to receive the support they need. And that's what we found was a problem. And again, there's amazing people that work with the Legion. And, and I, know, I know a lot of veterans have a, a bad taste in their mouth about who they've become and who they are now. And I mean, the local branches, they... Well, there's not much continuity between branch to branch. 100%. They're totally an autonomous, right? And yeah, so every horror story that you uh, hear, you know, that's that's branch specific. Yep. You know, maybe it's a lot of branches yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that produce these horror stories, but not all of them. And it's, I often think, man, why couldn't I have been the guy that was at the door and they said, you're not welcome while I was standing there in green because it wouldn't have been a pretty sight. Yeah. Right. But it just, it hearing those stories is heartbreaking, right? And Long story short, my time as a president, it lasted two years. It ate up my life. I was working full-time with, with Darren. Um, I came home at the end of the day, and I'd say, oh, I'm stopping in to write paychecks for the staff, or I'm stopping in to do a food order, or whatever it may be. And I, I'll be two hours on my way home at 4.35, get home at midnight, lights are all off. And it'll, that was two years of my life. And when my weekend showed up, my wife and I were selling 50-50s on Friday and Saturday. And if if we weren't selling 50-50s then, we were there participating in the activities and yeah. probably drinking more than I should have when I when I wasn't selling tickets. But uh, it uh, it was it was good to be involved with the community and that really helped me. So while I was there, uh, we started a local peer support program because of Three years in a row, the same four or five dudes were standing there at nine thirty, ten o'clock at night, standing over the fallen comrade table, a few tears, raising a glass, and we looked at each other and said, why do we wait for this one day a year to take the opportunity to lean on each other? And nobody had an answer, right? And there was myself uh, as a 20-year veteran, Mike Skinner, 32-year firefighter, paramedic, and veteran. Um, David Vandenbrink, retired RCMP, 30-plus years in the RCMP, retired veteran, um, corrections. And there was also 
um, Phil Parody, who's a current serving, I, I believe he's a lieutenant colonel now. And we were all standing there and we said, you know what, let's do it. And the first year went by, I think it was 2016. The first year went by. And that's the birth of OSI Ken. It was, at the time, it was all services kinship. We start, All services kinship. Yeah, we called it ASK. We were going to call it all services support, but we thought we're in the Legion and putting ass all over the all over the walls on advertisement boards wouldn't go over well. So, <laughs> so we figured, let's let's and don't be an asshole. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, so the first, that was I think 2000, 2015 was the second, no, 2015 was the first year, and 2016 when I was president was the second year. Somebody said, so where are we Where are we at with this group? I think it was Phil that asked us, and we said, haven't really thought about it again. Here we are again, yet another year, standing over the comrade table, fallen comrade table. And so we we created the group. I We knew a guy that had access to the Legion on the day it was closed, being me, and... Uh, we we provided the space. We we took it to membership, asked membership if it was something we could support, and uh, everybody was in favor of. Uh, we reached out to the well, no, at the time it was just we we went to membership and then they put they okayed it and we provided. So, the, so space. the Legion um, OSI can was born from the Legion. Was it yes. supported uh, by the Legion? Yeah. So. Now, Mike, Mike and I run these peer support groups, and in the early days, they were just a venue. They had no structure. It wasn't mental health discussions. If somebody said, I'm struggling with VAC, I need this, or I'm struggling with WCB, and other people would talk to each other and say, well, this is what happened with me, or this is what you need to do, or just sharing information and resources. But mostly it was a beer and a hockey game, just making those connections again. Right. Obviously, now it's much different. Uh, we've come a long way. Um, the we had other communities coming to us, and it would be nothing to have fifteen people at the at the peer support group, the Ask Peer Support Group, and they were saying to us, "We want to take this to Stony Plain. We want to take this to Drumheller. We want to take this to Fort Saskatchewan." And Mike, Mike, and I kind of looked at each other and we're like, "We can't franchise this. We're just two dudes, right?" But I'm an ex tanker. By no means in my business brains, Mike, I'm a firefighter and paramedic. I don't know what I'm doing, right? But Mike is in, in it every day, the mental health piece, and he has been. He just didn't identify it because he's always talking with people that are, I mean, as a paramedic and a firefighter, you're dealing with people on the worst day of their life, right, majority of the time. So so we, uh, fortunately, Mike, being a paramedic, he's partners with Dan Sundahl. I know you've had Dan on the show. And Dan had, uh, Mike was talking to Dan about it. And Mike said to him, we don't know what, we, what we're going to do. Like we, he said, have you ever heard of OSI Can? And Mike said, no, I sure haven't. I don't know who they are. And, and then we got the backstory on who they were in Saskatchewan. The OSI Can program was the result of a British uh, veteran and a first responder here in Canada who identified a need, created OSI CAN, and it was supported by Saskatchewan Provincial Command and CMHA Saskatchewan. So when Dan told us about this, we were like, wow, 
that's this is a great opportunity. They they were doing exactly the same thing we were, but they were in multiple communities, and they really got a, I'm going to say a boost, but they really got a a push when the Humboldt bus crash happened because in the rural communities where they existed, or where where the paramedics were from, they had no supports, and OSI can was the one that was left there after the critical incident stress management teams were all pulled out and they, the the immediate supports that were provided and then these paramedics and, and locals that participated in that crash were left swaying in the wind with no supports. One of the first responders that was there, Nathan, he um, his story was just terrible about how there were no supports for him. Yeah. And he and when he did ask for help, uh they basically blackballed him. And as as a as a firefighter. Firefighter, yeah. Yeah. It's, as a volunteer firefighter. And uh so when he says, "Hey, I think I need some help." Um or when he had a emotional outburst at, at at a meeting, you know, instead of putting their hand on the on their shoulder and go, "Hey man, let's talk." Mm-hmm. They're like, "Oh, you're unstable. Get out." Yeah. And uh, just terrible. But yeah. uh he was on the show. And uh, eventually won his WCB claim as a direct result of being on my show because the WCB case manager listened to the, our episode went, oh, well, that makes sense now. And yeah. he got his claim. Good, good. So, but um, just a horrific. Yeah, thing. it was a terrible incident. 16 right? dead, like just terrible. Yeah, terrible. And they, they, it was looked at like, okay, we have to get the stress management teams out. We got to get the, the trauma piece sorted. But over time, they, all those supports just kind of phased off, right, and, and left. And so OSI Cam was there in the in the community, and and they continued to provide supports to the people that that were willing to sit and participate. And when Mike and I heard about it, I guess it was 2019, um, a few months or a couple months before we went to Saskatchewan to talk to OSI Cam, the founder of the program committed suicide and oh god we we barely we heard about it but we had already had our flights booked to go and there was a symposium that was put on and it was all about mental health and and we were taking that opportunity to go out learn about it and that's what we used the first donation to the ask group for we had a local donation of 1600 bucks and mike and i wanted to go but we were like well i i can't afford to take eight or nine hundred bucks like i'm living on a, a small wage with the company i was working for and Actually, at the time, at the time, I uh, I wasn't working. No, I was. I was. My apologies. I was working for the HVAC company, and I just couldn't afford it. I I couldn't justify spending eight hundred dollars out of my own pocket to go to Saskatchewan buy meals for something I'm volunteering to do. Yeah, and it was it was difficult because I didn't. I wasn't. I don't know. I guess I wasn't willing at the time, and. It said a lot about my journey too, right? Where I was in the mental mental space, and now I would do that in a second, and and I have. Well, this is a good example of a conversation yeah. I just had the other day, uh, where people that are running these organizations, if they're not far enough on the other side of their own personal journey, they shouldn't be running these organizations. Absolutely. And this is an example where the founder committed suicide, yeah. or uh, the the proper wording nowadays is died by suicide. And yeah, and that was that was the big thing that Mike and I couldn't understand. We were like, this guy that created this amazing, amazing program, he couldn't find the supports. What is going on? 
So we went out and we learned all about OSI Can and and what what Chris had tried to do and to get the to get the program kicked off. And he worked with the Legion in Saskatchewan and the Legion said, "Okay, this is a mental health program. We're handing this off to CMHA." So CMHA kind of took it under their reign, CMHA Saskatchewan. And we spoke with the the person the new person that was running the group. He was fairly new at the time because of the recent loss and they uh they had they had no no issues being willing to share the name and us bring it to Alberta because they had they were gradually ending up out in in Manitoba. Uh, Manitoba is still struggling to get to get it kicked off, but Mike and I brought it back and it's it's blown up. We have ten ten peer support groups in Alberta nine nine peer support groups in Alberta, uh, three family groups. So. It's they're scattered everywhere. They offer online and in in person. So sometimes they're virtuals only. Sometimes they're in person only, or they could be a hybrid group. I know John Senior in Calgary runs his as a hybrid group. Um, at the time when we first started the program and offering the peer groups, we didn't realize uh, we well, after we came back to Alberta, we we came back and. We got a letter from CMHA Alberta Division and said, "Congratulations, you are now a named program of the Canadian Mental Health Association." And Mike and I are like, "What the hell is this? We didn't, we didn't make the correlation. We didn't realize that it was so official." So, out of nowhere, they were like, "Would you guys be willing to commit 0.25 of a position, like work X number of hours a week in this?" And I was like, "Okay, yeah, sure." And I had just left my job. I was with with Darren I put in a letter of resignation for the end of November or end of October and I said my wife had told me Jay you're miserable I can see it happening and I see you spiraling again and and I started seeing a new clinician and she was amazing she all she deals with is first responders and veterans um she understood. I felt like she understood. She spoke my language. It was layman's terms where I didn't have to, I didn't have to extrapolate anything out of the conversation. It was very, it was laid out for me. And when, after I had seen her for a month or for a year, I realized, you know, I think this is the piece that was missing when I got to the end of my previous two attempts with my previous clinicians. I didn't have the supports. I didn't have the accountability partners. I didn't have the people who could understand why I was feeling the way I was. So in these groups that I was attending, we were identifying, shit, you're yelling at your kids for no reason. I've heard you tell your story about the crumbs. Yeah. And and I'm listening to somebody in a group tell the same story. And I, and I talked to him after in the social piece because we kind of break it off into two different parts when we're in person. And I, I say to him, shit, you were doing the same thing. I, did, I wasn't allowing my kid to be a kid. Stop running in flip-flops and losing my mind. Yeah, Kids are going to run in flip-flops. But to me, all I was concerned about was the potential outcome, right? And everything was negative. And at the... At the same time, like my wife was noticing it. So even going to these groups, they, they have the opportunity to, they have the opportunity to wake something in us that, and identify 
those impacts. Well, right? this is the power of what it says on the top of my shirt. Yeah, 100%. Re- recover yeah. out loud. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And this is why I say it again and again. Because when you hear somebody else say a story that you resonate with and you go, oh, shit, that's me too. Yeah. You know, it um, it helps deal with a lot of the guilt, with the isolation, because you realize I'm not isolated. This is just uh, one of the common ways that this injury manifests itself. Yeah, absolutely. So how big is OSI can now? Well, we're now, officially we're in four provinces. We're in Manitoba. Saskatchewan, Alberta, and BC. Different stages of development, province to province. Manitoba and BC are still very small. Uh, There's one group in northern BC. Um, We're in discussions about opening groups elsewhere. Same as Manitoba. I think there's two or three groups, but we're in the process of looking for a in the process of looking for a provincial coordinator in in Manitoba. And they're, I think they've got 16 groups maybe in Saskatchewan. And oh, that's great. A lot, a lot of them are rural, right? And they're communities where supports don't exist. And whether there's three or four people in a peer group or there's 10 people that attend a peer group in Winnipeg or whatever it may be, right? Or not Winnipeg, in uh, Regina. So is OSI CAN working with uh, the D&D OSI clinics as, as well? Or, or OSIS, I mean? So... So OSIS is, is operational, it's the official D&D version of peer support. Yeah. Uh, that they have a paid coordinator that are trying to do these groups. OSI can is a volunteer bunch. Um, uh, so, but are, are you working together, the two groups? So a little a little bit further with my journey and, and how I ended up in this position, uh, because of my volunteership with OSI can in the early days and the ASK program, we were making connections on base. We were making connections with people. And after I left the job in the HVAC industry, I was asked if I was interested in a position to work with OSIS because they had recently had a vacancy. It was down in Calgary area. Uh, I think it was after John John left. And they said, we're looking to hire somebody for the Southern piece of Alberta as a peer support coordinator. And I was like, what do I know about peer support? Like, and then I had the conversation about, well, it's, it's all about lived experience and it's all about this. And I really started delving into it. I started listening to podcasts. I started listening to, to webinars. I started watching stuff and learning about it. And come February, the beginning of February in, in 2020, uh, I ended up getting hired with OSIS and, it was because of my involvement in this program. Uh, I think you you probably know that OSIS's mandate is pretty narrow, and our I say our like CMHA and o, and OSI can their mandate is mental health. Not if you got injured while on deployment or due to service, we can help you. If it's not due to service, there's nothing we can do. And I. I struggled with that. I found it really difficult to well, say. Because you're hurt or you're not. Right. And I, I, they are your people and you should be looking after them, right? And I really found it difficult to say to people, sorry, you don't meet our mandate. But it was easier for me than it was for somebody else that didn't know about Ask or OSI Can because I could say, sorry, if, if this was your case, sorry, Mark, you don't meet the mandate of OSIS. However, there's another group. I'm going to put you in contact with Mike Skinner. He's part of a, I was as well, but to alleviate that conflict of interest, 
I put I put them in touch. If I met them through OSIS, like what a absolute gutting it would be to finally work up the courage to to ask for help, just to be told we can't help you because you're not wounded enough for us. Yeah, or it didn't happen because of us or our sir, your service yeah, to us. Not our fault. Yeah. So it, I really struggled with that, and and knowing that they were hiring because of my affiliation with the Ask and the OSI Camp program. I was like, this is a chance for me to fill that gap that exists. So I worked with OSIS for, well, two years. I just I just left OSIS in March of 2022. And after that, I, I worked full-time. I'm now working full-time with CMHA. So hired by CMHA to run this program with Mike. Mike is uh, working a 0.75 position. So uh, we keep using a CMHA, but that's Sorry. the Can- Canadian Mental Health Association. Yes, Canadian Mental Health Association, Alberta Division. And they uh, have their own um, peer support qualification courses. So they do offer peer programs. They're not cheap uh, either. No, they're not. Um, well, most of the stuff that's offered through the Recovery College in Calgary, uh, most of the stuff is free. Okay. Um, they're not necessarily... There's a recovery college in Calgary? Yeah. And, and I'm just hearing about this now? Yeah, there is. I can, I can provide you all that information. Well, we need somebody from the recovery college in Calgary to come on the show. Well, I'll, I, Clearly. Can make, I can make that happen. I, I know a couple people that uh, work there and work down here and would love to talk about the offerings of CMHA to a greater degree than I. Well, Not I've that in, I'm aware. I've invited CMHC probably six times. Okay. No no dice. So I'll, I'll keep trying. Okay. Well, I'll uh, I'll throw it out there and see what I can do for you. Um, so yeah, so the recovery college provides one day or maybe four or five hour courses that, that cost nothing to the participants, right? And some of them are delivered virtually, some of them are in person and CMHA offers other supports for other people in the community. So if, if somebody reaches out to OSI can, and they're not part of our demographic or a family member of, of someone from the target audience that we, we help, we, being CMHA employees, we can direct them to those supports in their communities. Does uh, OSI can have? I know we're God, we're using a lot of acronyms, but uh, does OSI can have a relationship with the Military Family Resources Center (MFRC)? We they know we exist, and I don't know if they've been referring to us. I haven't had a peer actually say, "Oh yeah, I got your name from uh, MFRC." But uh, but we we tell people all the time have you been to the mfrc have you been to osis have you been to and that's for us have you listened to tango romeo yeah no absolutely (laughs) and you're you're on our website for a reason right yeah that's right so it's a big part of people when they they come looking for help is they know they need it they don't know where to find it right and over time mike and i sat down we had discussions like we heard multiple stories from peers who said because we're such a uh, person-centered organization we had people coming to us and saying i went looking for this i went looking for that my journey to find supports through va I, my journey to find supports through wcb was an absolute shit show and it, it crushed me and we talked about it before we went on the air about how difficult it was to navigate right and so even though it's been a long and winding road um Lots of ups and downs and, and, and very rocky at times. Who was Jason Trenholm before, at the, like at the beginning of the journey, and who are you now? What's the gap? The gap as in? Like what, who, like what are the differences between those two Jasons? 
empathy. I was cold. To everybody. I shouldn't say everybody. Selectively. People I knew I could get away with it with. Right? Uh, My children, as an example. I was dad, so I could be... I could get angry and upset, and they're always going to love me. Right? And... It took a long time to come out of that mindset. And when, like I said earlier, when we started talking, when we started talking about, in groups, about incidents that we've experienced, and I'm hearing the same thing from other people. And I was like, wow, like, I mean, knowing that it wasn't just me, right? There was a reason that I was in... There was a reason that I was a non-empathetic person, but I, it wasn't identified that that was the case. And it all circled around grief, whether it was my anger, whether it was my lack of empathy, whether it was unwillingness to see it, right? I just, I felt like it. it really the impacts of who I was then versus now, I see the bad about before and the good about now. And a big part of my recovery journey is being able to see that light come on in somebody else's eyes that's been extinguished for so long. Yeah. Uh, they, 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 they get to a point, I say they, we, get to a point, anybody that's been through that journey, you, that light gets turned off, right? And, and you're just existing. You're not, you're not living your full life to sound, to sound Jordan Peterson-ish, right? To, to have a purpose, to have a meaning. And that's a big part of the program is providing that to people. And we have a lot of people, I mean, a lot of peers come to us and they say, oh, I found OSI can a year ago. And it has got me out of my basement. It has put me in a place that I have a great relationship with my wife. One guy told me one time, my wife really likes it when I go to group. And you're like, why? She said, she said, I come home as a better person. I'm like, those are the wins, right? And the, the empathetic piece has, I mean, we use the analogy, the empathy tap is just completely turned off in the jobs that first responders and veterans do, the empathy tap just gets shut off. Yeah, it's a survival mechanism. Yeah, 100% it is. And when you attend group and you hear other people having the same struggles, you start to realize, okay, I can turn, it's, it's not going to hurt me to turn that empathy tap on. And when people are, have that tap turned on and they're performing their jobs in the first responder role or veteran role, it makes them that much better of an employee. Yeah. Empathy right? isn't a weakness. It's a strength. Yeah, absolutely. And 
Like I said, a, a big part of understanding where I am now is understanding that everything that I've experienced was some type of grief. This summer, Mike and I went to Denver, Colorado, uh, well, Fort Collins, Colorado, to the National Center for Loss. Uh, Dr. Alan Wolfelt put on a four-day seminar about grief and reframing PTSD as traumatic grief. Interesting. Incredible, incredible man who sp- speaks the language, right? And when he speaks the language, it impacts you. He doesn't speak on a clinician level. He speaks on a human level. Right. And I recommend like Mike and I will recommend that to everybody that we we talk to about mental health, because grief, that's exactly what our PTSD is, is grief. Well, there's the grief and recovery centers. Um, It's a franchise. Yeah. And there's uh, the Benoit's up in Edmonton that that run Benoit Wellness Consulting. Amazing people. Yeah. And that's uh, their free plug for you guys. But um now that makes more sense why it's the grief and recovery center and why that helps people that are recovering from PTSD. Yeah. And they have a very high efficacy rate. Yeah. I, uh, I actually did a grief course with Colette and that was my first, I'll say my first exposure to grief. Uh, I heard her say something. She, she used to be the, she used to run the family program in, in Edmonton and she's, she's a busy lady and she's got a lot on the go. So she, she decided to step away and focus on their organization uh, and their business because they run the FLRP, the Frontline Resiliency Program. Mm-hmm. And they, she wanted to focus on that. And I heard her say something one time. We were sitting in a facilitator meeting, and she said, I'm pretty sure it was her. She said something in, uh, to the effect that I sat with anger long enough until she told me her real name. Her real name is Grief. That stuck, really stuck with me. Uh, I've heard it said that um, anger is the guard dog of sad. Yeah, that's another good one. You know, and it's uh, also true. Yeah. Uh, Anger is actually a secondary emotion. As a result of grief. Yeah, absolutely. So when she when she said that, I was like, you know what? She offers a grief course, and one of one of our peers, uh, the one that. The uh, peer support group leader, uh, Trudy Dover in Edmonton, she uh, she had told me that, did you know that Colette offers this grief course? I was like, you know what, I'm going to do that. And I decided to do it after I, get, I got sick with COVID last year. I was down and out and didn't think I was coming home. Uh, I was I was intubated for 10 days and laid in recovery, the ICU for three days plus. And lots of time to reflect on life, right? And I was working for OSIS at the time, and I was volunteering slash volunteering hours and working part-time with CMHA. Uh, And that reflection time laying in the ICU really, really impacted me because I said, okay, I've only got so much time. Like, it could have been over already, right? More than once based on previous experiences. But then I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this this recovery course or a grief course. And when I did it, just sitting, writing a grief letter, writing, writing as learned through that course and how to experience it. And I recommend any, if anybody 
like I said, that was our inner, my introduction to grief. And then we did this thing with Dr. Wolfelt and it's just been eye opening and so therapeutic. Right. And that's, that's a whole part of getting involved, working with, with people from our demographic. It, it's may, I don't know, maybe it sounds a little bit selfish, but it's therapeutic for me to see that light come on for people. Sure. Right. And I'm sure it's no different when you're running your podcast. You do it because you know it impacts people for the better. And for my own selfish purposes too, you know, uh, this is cathartic for me. Like I don't do peer support anymore. Like peer support doesn't have to be a forever thing. It was a several years thing for me, but uh, I... I wouldn't say I graduated from it. I just, this is my peer support now between this and the arm wrestling club. Yep. You know, it doesn't have to necessarily be a, um, a group of other injured veterans, but the beauty of it being a group of, uh, of injured veterans, which I participated in and facilitated for years, mm-hmm. um, is that it really gives you that grounding and sense of connection and sense of community. And it's a soft place to land. Because when you're in a group of non-judgmental people that get it, because they're there too, um, that's the that's what makes it a soft place to land, you know. And it provides that comfort for people. It allows them to open up. It allows them to not feel so. They are feeling vulnerable, but they're not feeling at risk. Right? Yeah. The vulnerability is one thing, but when they're when they're trying to do that and they're feeling at risk at the same time, is that's when. That's, I think that's why the program is so, so, uh, I'll say beneficial for people. So in all these years in the peer support world, what are, um, cause I hear peer support being used and abused as a term, mm-hmm. um, from your significant amount of experience in the, in the field, what are the top three do's and don'ts in the peer support world? Oh, wow. Don't should on people. <laughs> you got that from yeah, me. <laughs> yeah. No, I got that from a, a girl at uh, a girl down in Alabama. She's oh, from, nice. Yeah, she's from Alabama. So they say it down there too. Okay, uh, I didn't know that you had used it before. Yeah, don't should on people. Right, like so. Explain and, what shooting on yeah, people is. Don't don't tell people what they should do. There you go. Right. Explain to people what you did and where it led you, whether that's good or bad. Well, I tried this. It didn't work for me. It might work for you. And don't right. shoot on yourself. Yeah. I should 100%. have done this. I should have done that. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. Yeah. Um, That's a good one. Yeah. It's uh, when, when she said, when she said that in, well, we call it in class, but when she said that at the four day seminar out loud, I thought she said, don't shit on people. And I just kind of, it's the same. Well, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. But I just kind of brushed it off. And then I heard her say it again. And I was like, what did you say? So, I mean, she, she definitely, that's, that's one of the things that really resonated with me, right? Because it's something I've heard people do, but I don't feel I've ever done it. I try to tell people, well, you know, I said, I've, I've done this, or I know so-and-so, so, so, not necessarily names, but I know a guy that runs a podcast, he's done that, or right? And it was beneficial or it wasn't beneficial for him or I or whatever it may be. So I guess that's, for me, that's a big, big do. Well, what's right. a, what's another? Um, well, that's a big don't. Yeah. What, what's don't another word for should, or like what 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 does the should mean? 
what is the actual message that's being given when you when you should on somebody? Judge, sure. Judgment. Well, yeah, of course, because you're telling them what. To, for me, I look at it like you're telling them what what is going to fix them. Which means right. you're also telling them you're not good enough. You're not doing enough, you know, and yeah. uh, and we should on ourselves and we should on others, which is minimizing people. And you're making them feel smaller and you're making yourself feel bigger. Because if you're in the position where you can should somebody, well, look how smart I am. I know what you should do. Yeah. I'm in the upper position here. So you're uh, the reason that we should on people is uh, to lift ourselves. Yeah. But you can't lift on some uh, somebody up by pushing them down, you yeah, know. Absolutely. And you can't lift yourself up by some by pushing somebody else down. Yeah. And uh, doing the shooting is just saying, "I'm smarter than you are. I know how this is supposed to be. I know what you should do." Absolutely. So it's as much about not being a douche, yeah, as uh, as anything else. Like don't don't be a douche and don't judge people and don't pretend that you're uh, you're in the know because it's so, it's such a shitty thing. Uh, to be told, well, you should have done this and you should have done that, you yeah. fucking idiot. Yeah. Why didn't you do it that way? Yeah, and and words matter, right? When oh yeah, when when people words are thrown at people, and depending on the space they're in, like I can take take a phrase that you may say way different than someone who's in a worse mental health space. Yeah. Right? So uh, another another don't a uh, big one I've learned, and it's. Not necessarily in OSI can did I learn this, but it was identified while I'm while I was working with OSI can or OSIS. Don't be attached to an outcome. Oh, I love it. Don't expect someone to heal overnight when you're trying to provide resources and help. It'll come when they're ready, right? All you can do is be there to walk beside them, hold that flashlight with them. And well, that, walk them through the day. That's also the cure for fear of success and fear of failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the cure for public speaking. You know, um, the it's the fear of failure, fear of success. Uh, when people are public speaking, or fear of not being good enough, fear of rejection, it all factors in with public speaking. But that it all boils down to the same thing: is you're worried about the outcome. So, yeah. in public speaking, the only thing you have to worry about is deliver your message to the best of your ability. The end. And if it, if not, you know, what happens to the audience happens to the audience. Forget about it. Detach from that outcome. Focus on delivering that message. And it's going to land or it won't. Fuck it. Absolutely. So don't be Uh, attached to the outcome. That's a good don't. Yeah. And uh, I might have to come back to the third. It's all right. It doesn't have to be three. It's just a phrase. Yeah. So let's do some do's. I know there's more. I know there's more. It's dudes. okay. It's okay. What, do's. What, what do's. are some of the do's? Be empathetic. Uh, Without uh, putting yourself in a in a burnout position, like hundred percent. C- compassion fatigue is a is a thing. <laughs> yeah. Don't just be empathetic with others. Be empathetic with yourself. Mm, be right? kind. Yeah, and and that allows you to move forward and stay in stay in a successful trajectory right it keep it keeps you keeps you balanced and i mean we're we're always hard on ourselves but just be understanding that okay maybe maybe it's not a big deal to shed a tear when 
somebody asks, who were you then? Who are you now? Right. So it's, uh, there was a time that I'd, my, my reaction to that question would have been, I'd have got angry. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'd be like, after the, I got off the air, I'd say, Mark, what did you ask me that for? Right. But, uh, but now I'm okay with those questions. And it's because of where I am now in the mental health space. So, um, do's be an active listener. You don't always have to be giving and you don't always have to be giving words, right? Listening is the biggest, a big part of the peer support. Well, it should be 70, 30 or, or 80, 20, yeah. you know, like 80% them talking 20%. And if you're talking, it should be asking questions, not telling, mm-hmm. you know, if you're speaking, you yeah. should be asking, well, not telling being an active listener. Cause and- then you're shooting. Yeah, exactly. Being an active listener empowers people to find their own find their own answers, right? You can guide people to an answer without without providing them the details. Yeah, active listening is about listening, shooting is about telling. So 100%. Uh, so now I'm seeing that active listening and shooting on people are the opposites of each other. Yeah. Absolutely. And the third uh kind of where don't be attached to an outcome came from after after I come out of uh come out of the hospital when I had covid because of all that reflection piece that I had and I had covid I had pneumonia it turned into pneumonia mm-hmm. uh but they said it was covid pneumonia whatever that means right pneumonia is pneumonia yeah. but uh but it it really impacted me and I was I was quite beaten down because of medication that I was on for arthritis, arthritic problem that I had my knees and ankles, not service related, I guess. Um, but that's okay. Uh, and that's why the pneumonia hit me so hard and why I ended up in the state that I was in. But after I come home and I was sitting talking and I called, uh, one of the OSIS guys that I know really well, and he came over to my house for coffee made his own coffee because I could barely walk. I was limping around and I get it eight days or 10 days in, in the ICU or brutal. My, I couldn't walk. I was using a, a walker. I couldn't use the bathroom properly. It was, it was horrible. But that entire time, not just in the hospital, but at home, just reflecting. And it, it Greg had said to me, you know, you're asking me these questions about, you're asking me these grief questions out of nowhere. Like, where is this coming from? And him and I have had multiple conversations about this since. But he said to me, one of the things that you have to do is respect divine momentum. And, I, and I'm not a religious guy. I'm not a faith-based person. I believe that there's something bigger, right? But when he said that to me, I was like, can you explain that? And he said, the easiest way, he's, we talked for a bit and what I got out of the conversation was how I related to that statement was we are exactly where we're supposed to be. There's a, there's a meaning for the suffering that I endured, you've endured, whatever it may be. Right. And if that meaning is providing the help to others that are struggling, then so be it. Right. And I mean, it does make it easier to take knowing the impacts that you've had on your families, mm-hmm. knowing the impacts we've had on our, our friends, 
our loved ones, right? But when he said that to me, I sat and I thought about that for a long time. What does that mean? Even with his explanation and incredibly smart guy and he's, I consider myself lucky to be associated with him and he's so knowledgeable in, in the peer support world and in the mental health recovery focused mindset. And he, uh, he just, he speaks well on it. And, and that's, that's how I interpreted the respect divine momentum. We are exactly where we're supposed to be. Yeah. uh, There's a piece that I want to do on this of um, embrace the suck which I've covered before, but not always in the same way. I think there's a book called that too. Oh, there, there probably yeah, is. I think there is. But uh, one of our fellow veterans, Vince Fowler, talks a lot. He's got shirts, Embrace the Suck. But the suck is what... The suck gives you an opportunity to overcome it. Mm-hmm. And to overcome any obstacle, you have to become the person who's able to overcome that obstacle. So all the suck is an opportunity for growth. And if the suck doesn't stop, it's because you haven't learned the lesson. Or you weren't listening when you should have been. Yeah, you weren't listening. But um, if the same things, uh, John Sr. talks about life traps. Mm -hmm. You know, and a life trap is a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy where there's no good women out there, let's say. So some guy just has no luck with women. He says, well, it's because there's no good women out there and believes it, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, uh, so what, what happens? Every relationship he, um, uh, that he chooses from some subconscious level is somebody that's, it's not going to work. Or the failure is somebody else's fault. Right. And that's yeah. where we end up with, end up in life when we're impacted by not necessarily an OSI, but trauma in particular, right? And trauma, those traumas allow us or the person affected to justify that end result, whether that's a failed well, relationship or whatever it may be. Uh, sticking with the example of uh, there's no good women out there, because we've heard this, right, mm-hmm. from, from people who have a, a long history of failed relationships. That gives that you can c- continue to believe that or you can see the opportunity in it to go, okay, What's change. really going on here? Make a change. Because we, we attract uh, those that are a reflection of ourselves. So the higher you're, you're vibrating, the higher frequency you're operating at, the higher frequency you're going to... It just changes the type of people that, that come into your life that are attracted to you or that you allow into your life, you know? Uh, there's people that I small dose because they're just way too low on the, um, on the ladder for, uh, on the recovery ladder, you know, they're not even at, at rung one yet and, yeah. uh, or believe that they need to start reaching for that rung and I can't fucking help them. Nope. There's right. not a thing I can do. All, people the, will move forward when they're ready. And that, in order to move forward, they got to look back. And when they're ready, I'm there. Yeah. But if they're not ready, I can't be anywhere around them because I'm still in recovery. Yeah. You know, and you're going to be pulling me down this ladder that I'm so desperately trying to climb. And, uh, luckily I'm, I've gotten through quite a lot of it, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm in a much, much, much better place, uh, which allows me to do this job and do the advocacy work. But, um, self-respect and self-love is choosing your environment 
very, very carefully. So if you think there's no good women out there, you're not being very picky. And you're also, your self-awareness is not where it needs to be. It needs to grow. Because there's something going on inside of you that's uh, the internal struggle that's creating the external struggle. Yeah. Your internal world. I'll give you an example. Um, There's a couple people in my family that if you were to see where they live, you'd be like, what the fuck? Somebody lives in there? And if you were to open the door, you'd start to gag as you see the giant pile of pots and the mice and the bugs and the path of dirty clothes and garbage uh, just to get down the hallway. And these people are in my family, and they know what I do, but I can't help them until they put their hand up and say, can we talk? Then I can help them. Absolutely. But the reason that the house is full of garbage and a giant pile of dirty dishes and there's flies buzzing around and there's mice running around is that all of this chaos and garbage and filth this is, is an external manifestation manifestation of what's going on on the inside every time cuz for two reasons one we treat ourselves the way we believe we deserve to be treated So if this is how you're treating yourself, this is why making your bed in the morning is so damned important. It's an act of self-love, a self-respect that nobody else sees, right? But behind these closed doors, if it is just this garbage dump, then on the inside of you, that's how you feel about yourself is you feel like garbage. And until you realize that the truth, which is, that ain't you. Nobody's garbage. Everybody deserves more. You deserve cleanliness. You deserve order. And then that external manifestation and the clutter and, and the mess, it creates a negative feedback loop. So it's messy because I'm a mess. I'm a mess because it's messy. And it's the spiral. So you have to do take care of your external environment first, clean it up, just find, you know, get somebody to do it for you or do it for yourself, clean it, maintain it, make it a habit. And what you'll feel is that all the internal stress starts to get sorted out and organized. And you start to feel better about yourself because you're treating yourself better. Now you're in a positive feedback loop because you're treating yourself better. You feel better about yourself because you feel better about yourself. You treat yourself better. And now you're in a positive feedback loop. Yeah, as opposed to the opposite, which... As opposed to the opposite. When people are affected by trauma, they can't get into that mindset of, I deserve better. That's right. Right, so... And that's where peer support comes in. Yeah, so the the program, I mean, those are the wins, right? When you hear people come back to you and they talk about what the peer group has done for them. And and OSI Can doesn't just provide the, the peer support piece. I mean, there's... There's four main pillars. Uh, the peer support for family is one of them as well. Um, and we provide assistance for service dog acquisition. Oh, wow. We, we don't we don't raise puppies and give puppies away. We we are affiliated with... But I like puppies. But we, are, we are affiliated with BC Alberta Guide Dogs Association, which are uh, a part of uh, VCID, Van, Vancouver... Or sorry, Van, VICD, Vancouver Island Compassion Dogs. Uh, 
BC Alberta Guide Dogs is a part of them. And they uh, we, we partnered with them because of their their strict um their strict policies and and they aligned with government of Alberta's needs. I know there's not I, I watched one of your podcasts here a little while ago about the lack of uh it was when VA was on and mm-hmm. that I've already connected with that guy, sent him an email as soon as your podcast was over. Oh perfect. Uh but uh yeah, it just I know there's no standard across the country, but they they really they have a good eligibility requirement, and they make they don't just give you a dog and you never hear from them again, right? Like they are ongoing supports for people that need service dogs, and they are one of the true providers of dogs who are strictly trained for PTSD as a, as a service dog for PTSD for veterans and first responders. So they're one of the few. Uh, that's the other. That's the third pillar. And the fourth pillar is we work with people to provide, we call it uh, Healing with Horses Weekend. So it's like an equine-assisted learning. And we're still waiting for funding. Uh, hopefully that's coming. Um, we, we've been operating on minimal budget so far. And how does somebody support OSI Can? Uh, you can go to the CMHA Alberta Division website. Um, just Google CMHA Alberta. And at the top, there's an opportunity to on their, their website, there's a spot to donate. And if you went to OSI can Alberta.ca, uh, there's an opportunity to donate there as well. And when you do donate, if you want it to go to directly to OSI can, then in the comment section, put down for OSI can, because right now, because CMHA Alberta is the registered charity, they, they provide us accounting. They provide us, I mean, the resources that we are provided to help us run OSI Can Alberta is second to none. We, we get their legal stuff. We get their chief projects officer is engaging with us. They're putting us in contact with people at a uh, provincial level. Um, we have a fund developer who, who gets us connected to events and, and whatnot. So, yeah, and of course, accounting or the uh, the finance piece is done by them too. So, yeah, so those are really those are our four pillars. Um, the healing with horses being the last one. Uh, we again, I'm not a I'm not a horse guy. I love spending time with horses, but we we plan the weekend. We we one of us, myself or Mike, would be the I'll air quote here camp sergeant major to make sure the food is there when it's supposed to be and all that good stuff. But we we connect with uh, legitimate providers of equine therapy, and we ask them to host the weekend, whichever ranch. And the idea of us providing any services from OSI can here in Alberta, we try to do that at zero cost to the participants. So that whether that's the service dog, whether that's the peer groups, family groups, or the equine weekends, and if somebody's coming from out of town, we put them up in a hotel. We provide them the we provide them the uh, the ability to attend because a big part of receiving those I'm not going being able to participate in those events a big barrier to that is cost right especially when people are on WCB or they're living on a, a fixed income and just don't have that extra income to well operational for. stress injuries and uh, reduced income go hand in hand that's why there's yeah. Um, the Veterans Association Food Bank food and the banks, Veterans yeah. Food Bank of Calgary, two di- two different organizations. Yeah. Um, that's just how it goes. Yeah. You know, operational stress injuries severely impact your ability to create an income. Yeah. 
Yeah, it definitely does. So that that's why we strive to provide it at no cost, right? And and that's why we always need funding. Um, we we've reached out to some people, and and hopefully we're able to make that happen. Um, but right now we're supported by the CMHA and their board, and uh, they're they're allowing this to happen right now. Um, in order for us to deliver it, we need we need much more funding because we've been operating on pennies since we since its inception, so to speak. But uh, but at least we're offering it, and it's something for people. Um, one of the I'll, I'll call it a pillar. One of the pillars that we have, it's not necessarily identified on paper, but when somebody calls us or contacts us, the program, whether that's another peer that's involved or whoever, they they receive resources. So Mike, Mike and I sat down when we were hearing stories of people struggling to make connections with the resources they needed. Uh, we said, okay, in Alberta, that seems to be a common theme. Like people are really struggling. Let's create a position that provided that for not just veterans affairs let's let's create a position and and we call it the provincial service coordinator that's my position with with OSI can alberta and i'm a program manager but that's my title for the program and that allows me to connect with the peers when they reach out whether they're looking for group or whether they're looking for for a resource that they that they need to move forward in their recovery that's that's why I sit down and have an, a conversation with everybody that comes to us and says, I mean, there was a time somebody would reach out and I'd say, okay, go see Mark. He's running a group in Calgary or John, I guess in this case, go see John. He's running a group in Calgary. And, but I wouldn't have, we wouldn't have conversations with them. And, and we found people are missing out on the information about what the program provides because they think, oh, well, they just provide peer support. We had people in the program for almost a year and they had no idea that we had a service dog acquisition assistance we had they had no idea we had family stuff right it just wasn't mentioned when they happened to be around because not everybody attends every week some groups only run once a month some run every week some run every two like john's right so it was an opportunity for us to to provide more to the to the peer when they're reaching out and struggling and and it's and it manages manages expectations right like are you connected with a clinician? If you're not connected with a clinician, why why would you want to attend group? If if you think that you're really struggling, or if they say I do have a diagnosis, you know, sometimes group can be the stepping stone yeah, to to a 100%, clinician. Because like the, that, this show also does that. Yeah, there's um, couples that have listened to the show for a solid year before they um, and they use it as a stepping stone to build up the courage to finally go through that door. Just like your experience, like. Uh, it took you three years after you had a bad experience. Mm-hmm. That happens all the time, bad experiences with clinicians. Yeah. So if you have that sanctuary trauma of a bad experience with a clinician, because that's what that is, um, you know, sometimes it takes a lot to build back up the uh, the courage. And, and that's one of the gaps that I stand in. Yeah. And so do you. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's it's been, not going to lie, it's been incredibly say healing for me right to be able to provide these services i mean i've had veterans and when veterans come to me i can say have you been connected to the legion have you been connected to va and i do the same for first responders when they connect to connect with us regarding their their recent not diagnosis but their recent assessment that okay they are now permanently disabled and in doing that we've we at osi can and that's everybody 
whether it's CMHA employees or OSI CAM participants, we've we've made a connection with a group called Prospect. And I don't know if you remember the Forces at Work program. Very similar concept oh, to I do. helmets to hard hats. Yeah, very similar. long time ago. Yeah. But they they just uh, received funding for a project that we went to them with and said, hey, is this something that could be provided for first responders? Because the amount of first responders that are being told, you're no longer you're no longer employable in the first responder trade. You can't be a paramedic because of your mental health. And people are 35 years old and they just feel beat down, right? Like, where, where do I go? So Forces at Work created a program called Forces at Work First Responder because we had asked them, is this something you could do? And they created it and they just launched it last week or two weeks ago. And they've got funding for them to reemploy up to 40 first responders a year from our demographic. So it, and they don't, they're not just, they are finding meaningful, purposeful employment for people, not, not door greeters or whatever. Not that there's anything wrong with door greeters. Everybody has their space in, in society, right? But they, they feel like when they're reemployed, they, they have a purpose. Yeah. And that sense of purpose is critical. It's one of the absolute pillars of recovery. And I'm always touting volunteerism. You know, volunteer to do anything, anything that's outside yourself, that's helping others. If you're not doing that, uh, good luck with your recovery. Yeah, if you're not giving back to the community that you live in or in some form or manner helping others, I I don't know. I know for a fact that's what got me through, through mine. Sure, because because if if you're giving to others, the hand that gives is above the hand that receives. So you're putting yourself in a position where, like, hey, I'm being useful. I'm helping. I'm making the world a better place. You know, and that's that's a powerful place to be. But Absolutely. Jason, I think we're about there, brother. All right, it's been awesome. Yeah, it has been good. Yeah. It's not often I go a buck forty. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for being here. It's really important. I've been. Uh, really looking forward to getting you on here finally yeah but that's good you know everything happens for a reason you yeah. know was it respect divine momentum and sure. i i'm pretty good at that yeah. i think right. when something doesn't work out i uh, i go well there's a reason and there always is yeah, absolutely we just have a lot more to talk about now than we would have two years ago yeah well 100 percent, right and that's why maybe that's why we went an hour and 40 so yeah that's all good awesome it's all good it's been a pleasure thanks for uh people that listened and and feel free to reach out osicaneb.ca if you just google osican alberta osi dash can and stands oh, for can op, i can op, i make op, a operational stress injuries yeah, yeah please go ahead uh, the osi can name uh it a lot of people refer to it as operational stress injury canada it's not mm. it's if you drop the os it leaves i can Okay. And allows you to move forward through your injury. So it's it's a kind of like a metaphor for hope and and we we try to we try to make sure people understand that but as soon as people see can the abbreviated form of Canada is what they interpret it as but mm-hmm. but that's what OSI can stands for. And we've heard people call it Aussie can, we've heard people call it OSI Canada, but I just wanted to make that clarification because I've heard that multiple times. So it's uh yeah, and I mean if anybody needs us, it's easily found on Google. And drop the OS. I can. Yeah, hundred percent. It was it was created with that intent. So, well, you got what you got now. You're not going to rebrand now. That's right. That's right. All right. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. 
Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. With a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud.